Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of deals, mergers, and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. It's my pleasure this week to sit down with Rick Kleiman, M&A partner at Hogan Lovells, who recently left Wild Gotchel after about five years. Rick is known for being one of the top Silicon Valley M&A lawyers. He's worked on deals for many of the largest tech companies in the world. His team of partners also repped Facebook on the WhatsApp deal from a few years ago. And he has chaired an interesting new study that addresses how to properly value a company based on the size of the transaction, specifically for strategic buyers that we'll get into a little bit. He joins us here in New York. Rick, welcome to Deal of the Week. Uh, nice to be here. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. So maybe just start with a little bit of an introduction. How did you get into the world of tech M&A, and why did you decide to become a lawyer? That's a very broad question, and it's uh, it's a question the, that doesn't have a super clear answer. Sure. Uh, I uh, came out of law school, and uh, uh, instead of going the Wall Street route, I went immediately to California because I knew that if I didn't go to California, I would never get the opportunity to go out west and uh, explore a career there. And uh, You were not from the west? Uh, no, I was yeah. from New York. I really uh, explored the west coast uh, virtually. I went out there sight unseen and uh, had never spent much time there. And I always assumed that I was going to come back uh, to New York uh, after a year or two. Uh, but California sort of grows on you, as you probably discovered if you I'm spent aware. any time out there. I, yeah. I've, many times I've gone through the same calculus in my mind of going out there and thinking maybe I'll never come back, but I haven't quite pulled the trigger yet. So uh, I started doing work uh, at a uh, large law firm in San Francisco in the corporate area, but actually didn't even work on my first M&A deal uh, until I was a fourth-year associate. And, and in those days, M&A isn't what it is today. Uh, it wasn't as commonplace a transaction as it is today. The transactions weren't anywhere near as large as they are today. Uh, and it wasn't really considered uh, a specialty the way it is today. This was around what year? Uh, this was in the late 1970s and into the early 1980s. But the second I worked on my first M&A deal, I knew that this is what I wanted to do for my career. It was so multifaceted. Uh, it, uh, it was so intellectually challenging. It put you in a position uh, where uh, you had to become something of an expert about virtually everything, it seemed. To be a good M&A lawyer, you have to be not only part corporate lawyer and part transactional lawyer, but part IP lawyer, part litigator, part tax lawyer, part securities lawyer, not to mention part investment banker, and uh, even sometimes part psychiatrist, given some of the clients we deal with from time to time. So did you move directly to Silicon Valley, or, or were you in San Francisco? No, I was in San Francisco at the time, in the Silicon Valley. Because it didn't uh, really exist, right? Th th that's fair to say. I mean, it existed to some extent, and uh, there were some early pioneer firms that uh, uh, had gained some traction in Silicon Valley. Uh, but I was in San Francisco uh, with a firm called Pettit & Martin. And it wasn't until some years later that I was asked by one of those firms that helped uh, pioneer legal practice in Silicon Valley, Cooley Godward, now just called Cooley LLP, to come down and uh, head their uh, M&A group in Silicon Valley. That was 1994 that I made that move, and it was sort of the beginning of the merger wave in Silicon Valley. And at the time, the idea in Silicon Valley for lawyers, and uh, you know, this was widely articulated by icons uh, such as Larry Sonsini, was that 
to be a successful Silicon Valley lawyer, you had to be a jack of all trades of sorts. Uh, you had to be uh, able to handle a venture financing one day and an IPO the next day and a licensing deal the next day and a small M&A transaction the next day. Uh, and my view at the time was that to service the growing companies in Silicon Valley, because we were seeing the beginning of what turned out to be a remarkable boom that's still ongoing, uh, to service those companies which were destined to become the most uh, uh, influential and sophisticated companies in the world, uh, you needed to really focus on M&A, uh, especially since M&A in and of itself is not a narrow specialty. It's a very, very broad specialty. So if you don't devote virtually all of your time to M&A and the, the related aspects of legal practice, um, you, you can't really, really adequately represent the, the most sophisticated companies out there. And how are some ways that tech M&A specifically differs from maybe the rest of M&A? Are there certain things within uh, employee compensation or regulatory that sort of makes tech stand out? Well, that's a great question. First of all, tech stands out because the assets of technology companies don't show up on a balance sheet. Uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, the most important assets of most of the technology companies that are acquisition targets are, number one, their technology, and number two, their human resources assets. Uh, the engineers, coders, uh, other talented employees are highly sought after. And as a matter of fact, there are some acquisitions in the past that have been done primarily to get access to those employees. Uh, you've heard them referred to from time to time. Aqua hires, exactly. So that makes the practice very different. You do have to have a good working understanding of, uh, of technology. You have to, as they say, know the difference between source code and Morse code uh, to be a successful uh, lawyer of any type in Silicon Valley. Uh, and uh, there are certain features of the companies there and necessarily of the M&A deals that, uh, that are done to buy those companies uh, that uh, you have to be uh, particularly focused on. And one, as you mentioned, the employees uh, are highly sought after. So in Silicon Valley, uh, compensation of employees and retention mechanisms, uh, retention mechanisms for employees are of critical importance. And uh, some of the most innovative and unique equity incentive plans uh, are there. And, and it's very common in Silicon Valley companies, uh, becoming a little more so in other companies now, but historically not so common, to give equity to almost every employee in the company, from the assistant receptionist right up to the CEO. How do you and other tech lawyers learn the difference between source code and Morse code? I'm assuming most people in your situation do not have a computer science background. No, uh, they don't. Uh, I, I, I did to, to a certain extent. I actually uh, came out of, uh, of high school and went into college as a physics major and uh, was very quantitatively oriented and uh, uh, very much uh, a math person. But many people do not. And uh, there is a type of lawyer that really didn't exist, say, 30 years ago, but that exists today that is very useful to an M&A lawyer uh, like myself in uh, teaching 
those kinds of concepts. And, and that's the technology transactions lawyer, uh, who often do have a science background, although not always, and whose job it is to understand the technology and its implications. Uh, and I have spent, and good M&A lawyers in the technology sphere spend a lot of time uh, talking to them and, uh, and learning about the technology in, in, their particular, uh, in, in the particular deals they're working on. As you look back on your career, I'm curious, is there one deal that really stands out to you as this was a really interesting deal or this was a career-defining deal in some way? Uh, there are a lot uh, because I've, I've worked on a lot of uh, interesting deals. I do have to say uh, that one of the most interesting deals I worked on was not a technology deal at all, uh, unless you call radar guns technology, because uh, I represented the Los Angeles Dodgers when they were sold to uh, Guggenheim Group. And I'm a big baseball fan. I've followed not the Dodgers, actually the New York Yankees for years because I grew up in New York City. And uh, actually doing that deal and even uh, interacting uh, at the uh, at the signing with Magic Johnson, uh, sure. who was... Uh, How were you brought into that deal? Because obviously not really a tech deal. No, it wasn't. And uh, I was at Dewey and LaBeouf at the time. I think uh, uh, many of your listeners will know about the saga of Dewey and LaBeouf, and we don't have to get into that here. Uh, but you did live through that, so I that did. should be noted. That, that, uh, you know, that I, I hope the that bankruptcy there. If you don't know about the Dewey and LaBeouf collapse, you can sort of Google that in your own time. I wouldn't call it career defining, but uh, it was certainly a, uh, a memorable experience. And by the way, this uh, sale of the Los Angeles Dodgers uh, was uh, was was done just as the firm was falling apart. But I was brought in on that deal uh, by, not surprisingly, uh, one of the bankruptcy lawyers at Dewey and LaBeouf who was handling the Dodgers' bankruptcy. And it was uh, a, a, a fascinating opportunity to see the inner workings of a sports franchise sale and the, and the price that that sale commanded at the time uh, was the three billion dollars. Well, right? I, it was two point one five billion dollars. Uh, it was the largest price tag uh, affixed uh, to a professional sports franchise in history. Uh, it may have been eclipsed since then. I'm not sure. I can't remember what the Clippers deal was done at with Steve Ballmer, um, <laughs> but that was up there also. Another LA sports team. So, anyways, before before we get to the study. Uh, so from Dewey and LaBeouf, you went to Weil for Weil Gotchel for a few years, and and just recently you moved over to Hogan. Uh, why did you leave Weil, and why did you decide Hogan was the right place for you, the new place for you? Well, uh, Weil was a wonderful firm, but Hogan had something that no other firm really has, and that is a uh, legitimate international platform uh, with uh, talented transactional and other lawyers around the world in so many locations. One of the things that you find, particularly in tech M&A, uh, is that virtually every deal you do uh, has a significant cross-border component to it. Uh, and uh, technology companies tend to become international much earlier in their lifestyles than uh, old economy companies, brick-and-mortar companies, uh, uh, just because technology is so easily transportable. It's virtual. And uh, you know, Hogan Lovells just offered an unparalleled international platform and, and uh, uh, unparalleled support in various other areas that are critical 
uh, to M&A, especially these days uh, on the regulatory front, uh, including antitrust, including CFIUS, and uh, all the other things uh, that are parts of uh, successful M&A deals these days. All right, so let's talk about the study a little bit. Now, not not everyone listening to this is an M&A expert, so maybe try to explain sort of why you did this study and the results in terms anyone can understand. But the basic idea here is that you're talking about buyer power based on size of company, right? Size of company and size of deal. It's really the relative sizes of the companies in the deal. And this applies, Alex, to acquisitions by publicly traded acquirers, strategic acquirers, not private equity acquirers, but strategic acquirers of privately held companies, not publicly traded companies, but privately held acquisition targets. And in some respects, the impetus for this uh, new study was a series of angry complaints uh, that I was receiving from big buy-side clients uh, about the very frustrating M&A negotiations they were having with the privately held targets that they were seeking to acquire. And again, these are buy-side clients that are serial acquirers, that do many deals a year, that are highly experienced in M&A. So I take their complaints uh, very seriously. And why were they frustrated? Well, Here's what's happened in the M&A negotiating context, at least with respect to these kinds of deals. Over the past, I would say, five years or so, when negotiating acquisitions of privately held companies, uh, these big buyers have been running into significant resistance uh, from sell-side lawyers armed with copies of deal points studies purporting to define what market practice is. And I call these studies sort of earlier generation studies because this new study that uh, we've come out with uh, is really part of a uh, new and novel generation of studies. So anyway, these sell-side lawyers would use the statistical data in these earlier generation deal point studies to try to show that the buyers were taking off-market positions on various important deal terms. Um, And you may be aware, Alex, but uh, one of the biggest insults that can be hurled at a, uh, an M&A lawyer in deal negotiations, at least in the current era of deal negotiations, is your deal is off market or your position is off market or that provision is not a market term. Uh, and everyone is searching for what's market. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, for example, a, a sell-side lawyer might say uh, something like this to a, a buyer and its counsel. It might say, well, look, according to the studies uh, that I've assembled here, this provision you're asking for, this, say it's a full disclosure representation, something that's very favorable to a buyer, if a buyer can include it in the deal. But just, just what, what exactly does that mean, full disclosure? Uh, a full disclosure representation is a uh, representation uh, that, at the risk of oversimplifying, uh, has the sellers representing, uh, and when I say representing, uh, if, if this turns out to be wrong, they can end up paying money uh, because of the inaccuracy in the representation. It has them representing that the information and the statements made by the buyer in the deal uh, are complete and not misleading and that, in effect, all material information has been provided. Again, I'm oversimplifying a little, but it's highly favorable for the buyer to get a provision like that. But, th- but not in every deal is what you're Not saying. in every deal. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what these sell-side lawyers would say. They'd say, look, according to these deal point studies, uh, that 
full disclosure representation or 10b5 representation as we sometimes call it is uh is off market it's only in 30 percent of the deals and we're not going to agree to it as a result uh and this would frankly leave the buyers and me uh shaking our heads in in disbelief because we know for a fact uh that in almost all the deals that the buyer has done in the past, the buyer has won this point. Uh, So that's been the big source of frustration for them. Now, the real problem here, in my view at least, is with these earlier generation deal point studies themselves, because they're very useful studies. They convey a lot of good information without question, uh, but they have a couple of shortcomings. The first shortcoming is that they tend to take what I refer to as a one-size-fits-all approach to their analysis. They treat all acquisitions of privately held companies as comprising a single unitary market, Uh, and they fail to recognize that transactions involving very large buyers uh, acquiring small target companies actually comprise a separate and different market uh, from transactions where you have smaller buyers acquiring larger companies. So as a general matter, uh, you know, a $250 billion uh, market cap buyer acquiring a privately held target company for, say, $75 million is going to get a better deal uh, uh, you know, or at least better deal terms, better non-price deal terms than a buyer with a market cap of, say, only $2 billion, sure. you know, buying a company for $400 million. Absolutely. You know, th- those are two separate markets, and a one-size-fits-all approach just doesn't work very well in right. this context. Think Apple buying something compared to Zynga or something like yeah, that. Right. right. Uh, exactly. And the second potential shortcoming of these sort of earlier generation studies is that the sample set that they use for these studies is skewed. The acquisition agreements analyzed by these earlier generation studies consist exclusively of publicly available agreements uh, filed with the SEC. Now, bear in mind uh, that agreements relating to the acquisition of small private companies by large acquirers uh, are generally not publicly filed with the SEC because those deals are not sufficiently material to the buyer to meet the SEC standard for disclosure. So these transactions are not included in the survey samples of these earlier generation studies, and that's why the sample set is skewed. So it was very apparent. Uh, and, and, and skewed not in the favor of large buyers. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. These large buyers, when the sell-side lawyers would hurl these earlier generation studies at them and say, this is not market, uh, their, uh, their inclination was to say, well, wait a second, all the deals I've done aren't even covered by that study. Uh, and then they'd say something, you know, sometimes very haughtily, uh, we're X, insert name of, uh, of buy-side company. We are the market. But again, uh, without a statistical basis for rebutting these earlier studies, that sometimes didn't work. And the buy-side uh, lawyers like me uh, and the clients themselves, the buyers, were very frustrated. So, uh, you know, it was very apparent to me that our uh, frustrated buy-side clients needed some sort of counterweight to these earlier generation studies, uh, which the sell-side lawyers were relying on so heavily. Uh, you know, the buy-side clients needed some sort of new study 
uh, that doesn't suffer from the same shortcomings that these earlier generation studies uh, uh, suffered from. And the underlying hypothesis, and you sort of articulated it earlier, is really quite simple for this study. It's that buyers with a lot of negotiating leverage tend to negotiate more favorable deal terms than buyers with less negotiating leverage. And there are a lot of factors, and you know this, Alex, that can affect uh, negotiating leverage. Uh, but perhaps the most important factor uh, is the size of the buyer relative to the size of the target company. And that's exactly what this new metric we came up with, the buyer power ratio, power meaning negotiating power, that's exactly what this new metric measures. It's defined as the ratio of the size of the buyer measured by its market capitalization to the size of the target company. And what better measure is there of the size of the target company than the price that the buyer is willing to pay for the target company? So if we categorize transactions in our survey sample by reference to this buyer power ratio, uh, that ought to give us a pretty good idea of how deal terms can vary based on the buyer's negotiating leverage. And that ought to help us recognize uh, that there is not one single broad market, but rather multiple markets based on buyer power ratio, or BPR as we call it, relevant to defining market practice here. So categorizing deals by BPR, or at least by range of BPR, uh, took care of the first potential shortcoming of these earlier generation studies, the one-size-fits-all shortcomings. Uh, to address the second potential shortcoming uh, of the earlier generation studies, you know, that skewing we talked about of the sample set, we decided not to have our study focused exclusively on publicly available information uh, to compile to, in order to compile the survey sample. Rather, I reached out to an organization called SRS Aquium. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with them. They are professional shareholder representatives, and they're hired in many many of these uh, transactions to represent the uh, multitude of shareholders. Again, even though these are privately held companies, these are, uh, many of them are technology-focused uh, privately held companies, and we know how equity is dished out uh, to, uh, uh, to folks in those companies. So there tend to be a lot of shareholders, and uh, it's very efficient to have a single representative of those shareholders. So they have this large database, a very robust database, uh, of, uh, of these agreements. Uh, they're proprietary uh, information, they're confidential, so we never actually had access to them agreement by agreement, but we were able to get aggregated data from S SRS Aquiam about these. And their sample, uh, we felt, constituted a much more representative sample of precedent agreements because it includes transactions for these large BPR deals, large buyer power ratio deals, that are effectively excluded from the group of uh, publicly available uh, um, uh, agreements. So, so are you now using the results of this study in actual real-world deal scenarios? Yes. Uh, the study was formally launched within the last week and a half or so, and we're using it. I mean, just by way of background, you know, I ran some preliminary results about the viability of the proposed new studies hypothesis that I described, and they confirmed the viability of it. There's just no question of the fact that deals with higher, higher buyer power ratios uh, tend to be more buyer favorable. Deal with deals with lower power uh, deals with lower buyer power ratios uh, tend to be more seller favorable. I brought it 
to the ABA Business Law Section's M&A Committee, which I used to chair. Uh, Scott Whitaker, the current chair of that committee, embraced it wholeheartedly. And so I ended up chairing the study along with Paul Koenig of SRS Aquium. Uh, they, uh, uh, one of the nice things about SRS Aquium is they have a professional mathematician on staff, so uh, he was able to crunch the numbers mm, and right. uh, help enhance the analytical rigor of the study. Uh, and uh, yes, it is, it is going to change the way acquisitions are conducted, at least in the area of publicly traded companies acquiring private held, uh, privately held companies because the buyers have a new uh, weapon. So if you're Oracle or Microsoft or Apple or Amazon, you have Rick Kleiman to thank for right. your additional buyer power. Right. And I might add one thing, too, because uh, – and, and you know, this is a personal wish of mine. It's obvious that this new study can be used as a tool to neutralize the skewed and, and, uh, and non-tailored results of some of these earlier generation studies. But I would say, ironically enough, in doing that, it may lead to a situation where the two sets of studies end up canceling each other out. They, they neutralize each other. And in that sense, uh, this may ultimately have the effect of reducing the extent to which parties rely on deal point studies generally. And that would sort of take us back to the days when M&A negotiations were won and lost based on the logic of the party's negotiating positions rather than on statistics relating to you know, past deal precedents. And, and uh, for what it's worth, I, I don't think injecting more logic into the negotiation process would be a bad thing. I think it would be a good thing. Are people over-reliant on statistics now? Is that sort of what you're hinting at? Uh, I, I think so to some extent. Uh, every acquisition is unique, and this idea of trying to establish what's market is a little off-base in, uh, in, in my view. Rick Kleiman, Hogan and Lovell's M&A partner, joining us in studio. Pleasure to have you here. Thanks for that. Thanks for having me. So that's it for this week's episode of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed that. Remember, you can find all of our episodes on Bloomberg.com or the Bloomberg Terminal or on Apple Podcasts. Please remember, if you are not already a subscriber, subscribe there and rate and review the show. It helps more people find us. You can follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. Sarah Patterson is our producer, Alec McCabe, head of podcasts. See you next week. See you next week.